Welcome to State of the Art Podcast. We are spending the month talking about art and morality. For our first two episodes, we talked about sexism in the art world with a founding member of the Gorilla Girls and art historian and curator, Catherine McCormack. In our last episode, we spoke to the Delaware Art Museum's curator, Heather Campbell-Coyle, and museum educator, Amelia Wiggins, about the work the Delaware Art Museum is doing to decolonize. Today, we're talking with Mara Sephor and Amy Wang, two members from the New York-based collective Decolonize This Place. Decolonize This Place is an organization that stages protests in cultural institutions concerning indigenous struggles, black liberation, Palestinian nationalism, minimum wage workers, and de-gentrification. Mars and Amy, welcome to State of the Art Podcast. I'm super excited to have you both here today. Um, I'm wondering first. Thanks for if, having us. Oh, sure, sure. I'm wondering if we can both maybe just start off with like a really um, brief intro about your own um, art practices or what led you um, to start decolonize. Um, sure. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the background of decolonize's place is a lot more about us as a collective. Um, so, uh, like, I mean, my, my background is in art history okay. and photography, but, um, like, decolonizes place really comes from uh, movement work and organizing. So, I feel like if we, if I answer that, I, I end up going into the background of decolonizing. Your own work. Uh, oh, okay, perfect. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, Decolonize Place, so to clarify, MTL Plus Collective is a group of about 10 of us um, who primarily operate out of New York City, and we facilitate Decolonize This Place. Um, but Decolonize This Place itself is uh, a group of many groups, um, both here in the city and also abroad, um, such as uh, uh, Take Back the Bronx, Chinatown Art Brigade, American Indian Community House, uh, Crystal House. There's a bunch of different amazing collaborators uh, whose voices and whose work we also want to highlight. Um, we want to highlight today. And uh, yeah, I think many of us identify as artists, uh, educators, or writers. Um, there's a couple lawyers in the mix somehow. Um, but together, we definitely just kind of focus on the, the movement and the collective work. Um, it's really hard for us to kind of separate the two. I noticed that, I mean, I think I see that you guys have collaborated with about 30 other organizations, which is pretty impressive. Um, how have you gotten all of those different groups to work together? It can be hard kind of getting a bunch of different groups um, to be communicating with each other. How did that come about? Um, in 20... Uh in 2016, when Decolonize This Place was operating out of Artist Space Gallery at 55 Walker in Lower Manhattan, um, we decided to open around five strands, uh, Black Liberation, Indigenous Struggle, uh, Free Palestine, Global Wage Workers, and Degentrification. So that those five strands brought in a lot of different uh, folks, specifically around degentrification, for example. Um, like then we were starting new relationships with different groups. We were also nurturing old relationships. And one 
really key moment for us is when we were like, oh, you know, there's a Bronx not for sale and Queens not for sale and Brooklyn not for sale and all these places are not for sale. Is there a way that we could do a New York City not for sale and think through a people's housing plan that is citywide as opposed to borough or neighborhood specific? Um, once that started, uh, relationships with anti-gentrification groups here in the city really started to be formed and nurtured. Um, and that's just one of the strands. Um, most recently, we added a six-strand dismantling patriarchy, um, which brings in a whole host of other folks. Um, I think that the 30 groups that uh, that we're talking about here were specific to the Whitney Museum as well, um, around the nine weeks of art in action. Um, but we like to think of them as decolonial formations that can happen and then move in and out of each other over time. Um, and each formation looks different depending on the target, um, whether the target be um, <clears throat> a real estate developer such as Salamanca in the South Bronx, or rather it be an institution um, such as the American Museum of Natural History. But important to remember that our work is definitely uh, movement generated coming from the streets. So a lot of the people we work with are also doing that. Yeah, Maybe like a good example of um, how we started pulling groups together and also how uh, one of decolonized this place first actions was in 2016 at the Brooklyn Museum because um, that was the first action that we did under this name decolonize this place and it came from um, an exhibition that was being shown at the Brooklyn Museum called this place um, it was like a six million dollar photo exhibition with well-known photographers um, that were like sent to Israel, Palestine to photograph what they see there, kind of presenting it as artists being these neutral observers of what's happening there. But um, they were also restricted from showing uh, anything around the Palestinian occupation. Um, and so the exhibition ended up being a lot of beautiful landscape, but it didn't show any people, and the only people that they showed were settlers. So um, that's where the name Decolonized This Place came from. So next to this exhibition, This Place, there was also an exhibition, Agit Prop exhibition, um, where it showed you know, the history of art and protests and activism within the community. Um, and a lot of, there was a part of the work that showed anti-gentrification uh, work that came out of the neighborhood surrounding the museum. Um, and also at the same time, the Brooklyn Museum was hosting the 2016 Real Estate Summit. So all three of these things were happening at the same time, and it became obvious that there was a large contradiction that the museum was putting out. They're hosting a real estate summit, yet they're highlighting art and protests around gentrification, and they're uh, putting on a show on Palestine, but like covering up art washing, um, displacement, and dispossession. And so if we're organizing around these three things we're thinking about dispossession and displacement and this but so this brings in activists who've been working 
around anti-gentrification in Brooklyn, as well as like displacement in Palestine. So you have activists who have been working on these seemingly different issues come together. And so like there's anti-gentrification activists uh, chanting for Palestine, you know, free Palestine. And this is kind of where you see different groups start to come together and make those connections within action in the Brooklyn Museum. What was the what was the reaction like to that action that you did at Brooklyn Museum? Um, well, Ann Pasternak, uh, the the director over there, she she's pretty hesitant. I'd say of all the museums, uh, it's, it's like speaking to a brick wall. Um, but I think what's important to us in measuring wins is measuring the relationships that we build as time goes on. Um, um, understanding from a movement point of view that shit's pretty fucked up right now in the world. You see what's happening in Puerto Rico and the uprising. You see what's happening in Hawaii, what's happening in Palestine, Mexico City. Um, and being in New York, there's this urgency. There's this urgency that we feel. So for us, winds kind of come in slowly changing the landscape over time, not necessarily like immediate results, right? Capitalism demands these immediate results and capitalism demands immediate reception, whereas we understand this is a longer game. So we understand this is just one small blip on a longer timeline that goes way beyond any of us in our collective lives of protest that's building up to something. Um, Some may call that something civil unrest, 2K19. Some may call it civil unrest, 2K20. Stay posted, you know, but... um, that's what we're really that's what we're really interested in is how do we make these connections concrete and how do we make it how do we really live solidarity in 2016 decolonize this place had a protest at the American Museum of Natural History with about 200 activists and you guys covered the statue of Theodore Roosevelt which is um, setting right outside of the museum with a large black parachute and included in one of your demands that the statue be removed. Um, I'd like to quickly describe the statue for those who may not have seen it. Uh, The president is on a horse. He is flanked by a Native American man and an African man standing below him. Um, It's well known that Roosevelt supported eugenics, and while he believed slavery was a sin, he was racist, and he looked at people of color as inferior inferior to whites. Um, So... This action took place, what, three years ago at the museum, and yesterday I was drinking my morning coffee reading uh, the New York Times art section, and on the cover, there are actually two stories um, that showed us that museums are kind of listening. The first article was directly related to that Roosevelt statue. Um, So the museum did not remove the statue, and it should be noted that the, uh, the fate, I believe, of the statue was determined by the um, the mayor's advisory committee, I think. Um, but the museum did choose to contextualize it with an exhibition titled Addressing the Statue. Um, so they kind of go on to open up a discussion about how problematic this piece is. So I'm dying to hear what you guys think of uh, the museum's move. So there's a lot of moving pieces here, right? So the, the mayor's advisory committee was a joke. Like, we all know that it was what was happening in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, prompted 
uh, Mayor de Blasio to make that move as a PR stunt, like point blank simple. We knew folks who were on the committee that confirmed this. And uh, many of us went to the public hearings um, where, again, it was just kind of a performative joke. Um, so that's number one. Number two, we've, um, unlike the Brooklyn Museum, um, representatives from the coalition of groups who came together initially to hold this museum accountable uh, met with um, uh, folks over at the American Museum of, of Natural History. Sorry, I almost said the American History House. That would have been, if they would have came there, that would have been better. So the coalition of folks who have been working on holding this museum accountable met with museum representatives a few times over the past couple of years. And the museum loves having these conversations about having conversations. And the museum loves to contextualize things. Um, but what the museum doesn't love to do is actually hold itself accountable in this ongoing history of settler colonization. What the museum doesn't want to do is talk about the fact that they enslaved Otabanga. They don't want to talk about repatriation. They don't want to talk about this bullshit um, contextualizing practice that is so hip right now where you add 10 plaques to a diorama that is just flat out wrong. And that's your way of like doing the work. It's very weird. And we know this because the Whitney Museum had a show on 50 years of protest, right? And their vice chairman is tear gassing and killing children around the world. So uh, the Brooklyn Museum had a show called Agitprop on anti-gentrification as one of its topics as it was hosting the 2016 Real Estate Summit. So it's like the American Museum of Natural History, knowing damn well that October is coming and Indigenous Peoples Day is coming, they want to have this exhibition where they're contextualizing it, where they're addressing the statue. And it's like, you're not, though. You're not. Instead, you are co-opting a movement and you are attempting to art wash it and incorporate it into your museum so that you look good. The same way you did when you added 10 plaques to a racist diorama before the third annual Anti-Fondus Day tour. Um, and we know this because the museum thought it was okay for a hot second to host a fascist, Bolsonaro, as the man of the year. And the, it wasn't until Decolonize This Place made a Facebook page that went viral that was like, you hold this event, we shut it down, that they shut the event down themselves, right? So, like, how did you do that a few months ago? And now all of a sudden, you're doing a, a show about addressing the monument. It just doesn't add up. Yeah. And I think we see this a lot in museums where they end up taking a political moment and making it into an exhibition, you know, which kind of strips it from... <laughs> like the demands that are being put out, the political power that is being that's pushing like these demands. Um, and like you know, the Brooklyn Museum that put on uh, the like black radical women and like show for, almost in response to the protests that came out after um, the hiring of a white curator for the African arts um, department and it, it kind of just tries to like give them control of like, Oh, we're addressing this. Like, look what we're doing. We're being really progressive, but at the same time, they're not actually changing structures within the institution itself. It's just mm -hmm. creating another brand 
and like PR for themselves, um, where they want to hear from people <laughs> or like they want to, you know, uh, show something that seems radical or is trending at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but it really doesn't address the root of what we're talking about. You know, that's been happening a lot too hasn't it where museums will kind of have like a token exhibition with all people of color all women lgbt you know and then um that's it and that's it and they look like they've done something you know to please people and that's really it's just not enough right right right, right. Uh, i oh were you gonna say something go ahead oh no it just begs like a question that we keep asking is like or, or more like a statement that we keep saying is they want the art and not the people. And that came from the Brooklyn Museum because, as Amy mentioned, when the hiring of Kristen, when Muller Luna uh, happened, but not just her hiring, was also the hiring of a white male for, um, for uh, photography. Um, when that hiring happened, the Black Radical Women show was on. And right after the Black Radical Women show was the Latinx uh uh, radical women show right and then right after that show so it was like the soul of a nation show and it was like this preemptive like like we know that you guys are going to hold like hold us accountable and this is our way of like being held accountable in this really like misconstrued way so it really just begged the question like do you want the art and not the people because here you are showing art of black women of latinx women yet you're also displacing black and latinx women from the neighborhood so you want a way to profit off of the art to take a moment within a movement and strand it in the past, strand it in history by making it concrete, making it into an object, because you don't actually want to see that movement progress. It's really, it's a really um, colonial type of mentality of like, oh, that's happening in that movement. I'm going to snatch it out of its uh, natural habitat where it is literally living a life to free people. I'm going to strand it in the museum. It's essentially like, what would the American Museum of Natural History have looked like, like today, if they were acquiring, acquiring new objects? It would be the Brooklyn Museum. It, like that's literally what they're doing. They're like, "Hey, that banner that you made for that protest against us, where'd it go? Can we have it? You know?" Or why is the Whitney Museum sending their own videographer, photographer, to document our protests? They refuse to meet with us. They refuse to comment, but they send their own person, and when you talk to the dude, he's like, "It's for the archives." Oh, so really? what, 50 years, the Whitney Museum right. could put on another 50 years of protest show featuring, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, there's a lot of contradiction going on. And I think the moment that we're in is shifting the conversation, highlighting this, um, which again gets back to the idea of like, it's, it's not enough to just be like, well, did this person step down? You know, did they hire a different person? Those are all symptoms of larger structural issues. We're here to really like, for the long haul, think through structural issues in institutions and what uh, uh, accountability and what a decolonial process could look like. Um, I want to go back real quick to um, the Roosevelt statue, just because the quote that uh, the museum put up, a quote the museum put up on the wall was, uh, I want to talk about that real quick. I'm going to read it. Um, the quote says, to announce that there must be no criticism of the president is not only unpatriotic and servile, but it morally is treasonable to the American public. Nothing but the truth 
should be spoken about him or anyone else. But it is even more important to tell the truth about the president, pleasant or unpleasant, than about anyone else. So this is a Theodore Roosevelt quote that they used for this exhibition. And just thinking about um, what you were saying about how museums will kind of give a token exhibition and think they've done their job, I feel like... Um, I can't help but wonder if they used this quote, which is, it has new meaning now that we have a pathological liar uh, in the White House right now. If they use it to sort of um, tell people, like, we understand what's going on and we're, 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 we're on the right side here. Um, but it just, it doesn't seem like it's really enough in my opinion. Um, but I'm wondering, do you think that, this movement, these these changes, these um, protests would be happening um, at, on a, such a large scale if Trump hadn't been elected. I know these movements have been happening, but there's so much focus and attention right now on what you guys are doing. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, sorry. <laughs> so I guess I'm just, um, I'm wondering if, do you guys think that, um, for example, would this um, exhibition at the American, at the Natural History Museum even be going on, you think, um, regarding this Roosevelt statue, if Trump wasn't even in office, if like Hillary were in office right now, like I imagine people would still have an issue, but not as many people would still be listening because we're our political climate is just such in such a different state right now than it probably would have been if Hillary was president. Does that make sense? I mean, I, so I think so the work that we do, like, and the things that we've been saying is that Trump has been here since 1492. Mm -hmm. So it's like people have been organizing and doing this work for a very long time. And I like the work that we do would still be happening no matter who's like in the presidential seat. So like, um, like, and I think this is a, actually a moment where, um, you know, people are thinking about like accountability to institutions that they're a part of. And for us, like that's the big like push that like drove us into a lot of the work that we do. And like, it's not only like museums and cultural institutions, we are really pointing at um, a lot of the structures within the cities. And for us, since a lot of the work we do is in New York city, it happens to be here. Um, but we're also encouraging and pushing people to like look at institutions where they are, right? Because we know that like um, within decolonial, like a decolonial process, there is a diversity of tactics, and that comes from uh, different starting points. Um, so I think no matter what, this work. Uh, would be happening and would have the intensity that it's at now. Because um, we also, yeah, we also see that we're, um, yeah, I'll leave. Okay, perfect. <laughs> uh, I think that, um, 
Well, the first anti-Columbus Day tour was in October of 2016. So this is actually the moment before Trump gets elected. And we had, it was still over 500 people who came to that protest the first year. This was back when uh, white America still thought everything was a joke. This is before people understood that black lives, that trans lives, that indigenous lives, specifically indigenous women lives were at stake. This is before people cared because it didn't affect them. Um, however, what's important to know, uh, highlighting what Amy said, is that Trump has been here since 1492. So he's just one blip on this longer timeline of struggle um, for liberation that we are all a part of. And because we plug into those um, timelines and we plug into our ancestral um, heritages and beings, we understand that things go beyond Trump. Um, however, of course, there was um, just a crazy upsurge in folks uh, organizing or trying to get organized post-Trump. Um, and that's been uh, really interesting in the landscape. But for us, the folks that we organize with have been doing this uh, before then, and it's POC-centered and community-based. So a lot of these folks, they were being evicted from their homes, shot at by police, all of these things well before 2016. So I'd say that it didn't really uh, affect us as much. Um, however, you know, definitely changes the landscape of the art world, the art world being um, a microcosm of the settler colony, right? Um, so if something happens more broadly in the settler colony, of course, that affects the art world and like attention spans there. But I'd also give credit just to the people who are relentless, who are out there fighting to make their voices heard and putting two and two together. Because right now the conversation could easily not be about decolonization. It could be about whatever other bullshit left this thing people are putting out there. The representation, you know, like hire that one black woman and like free yourself of all colonial sin. Like that's where the conversation was and that's where it very well could still be. And unfortunately that's where, it is for a lot of people as we see, uh, what was it, the art forum conversation that they hosted with Ann Pasternak and her goofy ass and like these other people, like it doesn't make sense for her to, like that whole situation was so dystopic and so present that it was like, wow, like this is really truly where you, you guys are and, you'll, and you would be even like further behind. Imagine that conversation happening had to colonize this place, not uh, along with uh, over 10 other groups not protested for the museum. It would have been a shit show. Like, be, but it would have been a secretive one. This one was like a public, everyone was like, you. But, you know, like, it would have been like, it would have been like people thinking Obama was a good president. Like, that's literally it. Where it's just like, everyone's like, take me back. And I'm like, take you back to what? Like deep, like one of the highest deportation rates in the history of this country. What exactly are you trying to go back to? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering what you, um, what you guys would like to see done with um, a statue like Roosevelt's. Um, I know, like my fantasy, <laughs> my fantasy is probably that these, all of these statues um, that of white men that we are honoring that need to be taken down are moved to some, I don't even want to call it museum, but to some space where they can just all sit together and stew in their nastiness. Do you guys want to see them actually physically destroyed or like, what do you, what should we do with them? 
<laughs> I mean, so yeah, I mean, like I think so. What did happen during the time that the mayor's like uh, the monument commission review, yeah. like they did remove one statue of uh, I think Dr. Oh, Dr. James Mary James. Yes, they just relocated the statue to somewhere else, and I, I don't. I, at least I don't consider that a removal. Like, I feel like it's just putting it somewhere else where um, people might not complain so much about it, you know? And that's, I think, their their logic around it. And I, I feel like removing it and, like, not having it <laughs> um, displayed because it holds like certain values and principles that doesn't um, s- serve the people, <laughs> like that is an important move. And like you know, I don't mind if they destroy it. I'm okay with <laughs> the, like destroying these like really racist like white supremacist values that's that's what i see if it's destroyed it's destroying these values that are really like harmful and destructive to people i think the idea that one person should be memorialized in a statue and held above all else as an idol and icon is ridiculous in and of itself and for a nation that's founded on christianity as they claim to be like they should know that shit like like, literally any framework you use that they so behold as, like, valuable doesn't make sense for statues to even exist. Like, Christianity being, like, a really big one, right? So it's like, why does this country have statues is a question. If it's actually against the beliefs of those who are in power to idolize. And so then you're like, wow, it really truly is about, indoctr- like, indoctrinating this white supremacist ideology and history into your mind um and it goes the same way with other statues too like it's just like it's just like a statue of mlk it's like thank god for mlk but he was the only one you know and it's just like day and they're just like all right who's the leader here it's just like what are you talking it's like who's the leader you know and it's a way of like separating people like individuals from their people. So for me, I could give two shits about statues to begin with. Like just on on an ideological like level, they just don't make sense. They separate people as like the best or the cream of the crop, ignoring all these other things on one hand. And on the other hand, it just it just is it's just about like creating this like these false narratives and like forcing them down your throat. So I guess I say all that to say that so many people are just like, well, if you remove the monument, like what's going to be in its place? Uh, I don't know, maybe a communal meeting space, like something that doesn't have to be this vertical, phallic, Christopher Columbus-esque 59th Street Columbus Circle statue. You know what I'm saying? Like those things don't have to exist. Why are we thinking like even this like vertical architectural, right? Like, um, Like the Theodore Roosevelt statue is like so phallic, even in a crazy way where if you, I don't know if you've seen it, but the horse that he's on is a, is a stallion. And the way that they rendered the stallion's like balls are insane, right? So it's like literally the Columbus Circle statue, not too far away from this statue. You can't even see it because all it is is just this long 
pole that reaches up into the sky. Like, right? What if we thought about these spaces more horizontally, where they become meeting spaces, where things happen, um, right? Like, that's a whole different way to think of these spaces. Um, so yeah, like, burn the fucking statues. And then on top of that, if they're not going to burn the statues, let's be real. But if you're going to put them in a museum, put them all in a museum behind fucking glass cases, like my people are, and call it the Hall of White Supremacy. And if it's not called the Hall of White Supremacy, I don't want to go. Oh my God, done. Like, <laughs> that's the solution. Yeah. I mean, it, it's such a sensitive, destroying artists, such a sensitive topic, obviously, in our country. But I personally feel like a statue that was built with the sole purpose to honor someone, a, a white man, a horrible white man in most cases, it's it's different than uh it's different than a piece of art on the wall in a museum and i know not everyone feels that way um and whenever you talk about destroying things it just people immediately it divides people immediately but um and do you guys feel the same that it's just it's yeah. it's yeah it's different it's, it's yeah different. but governments destroy books and books are art so it's like literally like it's not even like i'm trying to place value on like this piece of art is more meaningful than this piece of art is more meaningful than this piece of art. But it's like, they destroy art all the time. There are books that are banned from being read in prisons. There are, which is essentially destroying books, you know, it's destroying knowledge for people. So it's like, it's not even like, um, art is only holy when they want it to be holy. Right. Yeah. And it's like, who is dictating what is art? Right. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, um, you know, is it, does it just live within this like white box, pristine art world thing and that makes it art? Or is like the people who make art and like slay on the streets, you know, can that be considered art? Is the work we do consider art and like they don't mind destroying the stuff we do? <laughs> like, yeah, like, so, um, like, who, who's determining what art, what is, like, yeah, mm -hmm. and for who? Yeah, <laughs> especially when you have sacred ancestral living op like objects that are stranded behind glass cases in museums like the American Museum of Natural History, and the reason why they strand them is because Westerners, like white, you're like Westerners, are saying that that's art, whereas the people who this ancestral being um, originates are saying no, that is a living being. Um, so even in that case the holy value of art is being placed on objects taken from colonial plunder um, as a way of saying these can't be destroyed. And if we repatriate them, they will be destroyed. So it's really just the whole thing is very, again, it's just very, it's just liberal contradictory madness. Um, I, I would love to talk about one of your actions actually at the uh, American Museum of Natural History that I really loved. Um, it's when you guys were, occupying regular educational tours that highlighted uh, stolen artifacts. Um, can you talk more about that? Because I love that this action engages and educates, but it's still like really pushing a button. Because I'm, I'm assuming then you would just kind of join in on an already existing tour and then provide information. Or can you tell me exactly how that, um, what that action looked like? I mean, I think, so our actions work on twofold. You know, we are um, pushing and demands on the museum 
like when we started, there was the three demands to remove the statue, rename the day, and respect the ancestors. Um, so there is this push for the museum to make these real structural changes. But then also you're these actions are meant for us to bring everyone that we organize together, people within like the communities that we work with together and to reimagine these spaces with our own stories and narratives, you know, and this is where the alternative tour comes in because the, the alternative tours, these narratives are written by the people that we organize with. So like it's the American Indian community house. It's, uh, like take back the Bronx it's like uh Comite like the Puerto Rican crew you know like it's all these different groups that we work with where it's like these like the stories in the museum those are ours and this is it's a way to reclaim and reimagine the space together and to share it with each other when we are together so like that's um how I see these tours as working right it's like to push like and to challenge like the museums themselves because they need to be doing this work. But also if we're going to be there, we're going to reclaim the space and make it our own and, and envision it the way that we want to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In the first two years, we, um, the first two years we attempted to do a large group tour where the first year was all 500 people to, together moving through the museum Mike checking different exhibits with the corrected narratives that were written, co-written by the descendants of those ancestors represented behind those glass, <coughs> excuse me, uh, by the descendants of uh, those ancestors represented behind those glass cages. Um, the second year, our numbers over doubled. We had over a thousand people who came. And so we split off into two different groups and two groups moved through different points in the museum, um, you know, which was, a, which was insane because it was like, then you really take over the museum or so you think until year three, we decided to do organized chaos, which was okay. This museum is a hall of white supremacy. It's a trophy case. We know that because Theodore Roosevelt is the father of conservation and heavy quotes, um, conserving what land for who. Um, but he was the one who was really about this idea of like trophies and how to display them. And you can see that in the museum with the way that the animals are displayed and the way that the animals are displayed next to people. So the way that peoples are displayed and you have the hall of African peoples and African mammals and the hall of Asian peoples and Asian mammals. And you have a hall of Northwest coast Indians and a hall of Central America and all these halls where it's just really a colonial map. So what that does is it provides us a blueprint to go in and be like, all right, Black Youth Project 100, um, who was a group um, working around the movement for Black Lives, they led whatever they saw fit to lead in the Hall of African People and African Males. Uh, Chinatown Art Brigade and the South Asian Solidarity Initiative, they together took over the Hall of uh, Asian Peoples and Asian Mammals. So like all these different groups found their ancestors, took over those halls, whether it was with performances poetry readings, mic checks, mini tours of the halls themselves. Uh, Take Back the Bronx and Comite Bariqua, they literally just threw a fucking party in the museum. That was great. Um, I don't know, like five different groups started lighting sage out of nowhere. I was like, who brought sage? I don't know, but that was happening. And what was great was that then when you were handed the pamphlet of like what was happening for that day in year three, you got to look and see what 
where your interests were and where your people were. And then you got to go decide where you wanted to spend your time for the day and then like fully engage in that way. So we spatially and sonically uh, took over the, actually took over the museum in year three. Um, and then I think it was even more engaging for folks who came through. But again, as Amy said, it was about reimagining that space and thinking through like what it could look like um, for us, um, for us and by us. And also like a big part of those tours that the brochures that we create were co-written, like Martin said, by the many these are also like free and available to download online because we are also encouraging people to download it, take it, and take this experience for on their own. We don't have to be the ones that lead it either, you know. It's like um, we want to make that available and accessible to people to do on their own. Well, we don't have much time left, and we haven't even talked about the Whitney. So maybe we can finish with um, <laughs> talking about um, the nine weeks of protests and getting into um, Warren Candors. Can you guys quickly set up um, what the nine weeks of protests were about and um, kind of get into a little bit about money in museums? Um, I think I can start. Um, so on Thanksgiving in 2018, Trump orders uh, tear gas to be fired on migrants uh, coming through the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, quickly, images of that tear gas went viral uh, because people are looking at it in Ferguson and people are looking at it in Palestine and people are looking at it in Sandy Rock and they're like, wait, this is the same tear gas that was fired on me. What does that mean? So quickly, it was like safari land. Um, so with a little bit of research, you realize that groups such as the War Resisters League, they've been protesting Safariland for years. Um, so then it's like, okay, well, who's behind Safariland? CEO Warren Canders. Warren Canders is also the vice chairman at the Whitney Museum. So um, at the end of 2018, about 100 staff members at the Whitney Museum wrote a letter demanding that Warren Canders step down and also demanding an accountability process be put into place so that when things like this happen, the, the staff feel like they're actually safe. Specifically, this letter was signed by many people of color, many black and brown people, um, front of house staff, um, you know, the, the food workers, right, who are actually at risk of being on the receiving end of these weapons. So because of these actions, Decolonize this place, along with over 30 other groups, decided to host uh, nine weeks of art and action, um, making uh, a, an argument for how th this, yes, this starts with tear gas, but the tear gas, again, is just one blip, one moment in this larger movement. And how do we situate this tear gas in terms of a larger project of decolonization? So each week, we wanted to highlight different things, starting with tear gas, then talking about the land, right? The land that we were on in New York City, we're on the occupied stolen land of the Lenny Lenape, um, thinking through how that land used to serve um, queer people of color and how those people were pushed out, right? Um, we talked about, there's a whole week on Palestine, right? Because in Palestine, they used the tear gas in Safari Land, but they also use rubber bullets, right? Which are actually, um, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, illegal, um, like world law illegal um, that they're using against the people there. The following week, we focused on Puerto Rico. Now, if you're following what's happening in Puerto Rico right now, um, with them trying to get uh, the governor, uh, Ricky Roseo, to resign, uh, 
they're making up all these lies saying that protesters are throwing the tear gas. Well, we already have the research and we know protesters aren't throwing tear gas because that tear gas was sold specifically to the police force in Puerto Rico because it's safari land tear gas. So now we have this information, right? So it's how do we plug these things back into movements? Um, and along the way, over 120 uh, art critics and writers and educators signed a letter demanding the removal of Warren Kanders. Um, over over 50% of the Whitney Biennial artists signed the letter um, asking for the removal of Warren Kanders. So again, um, this is just measuring these like small shifts over a long period of time. But um, yeah. And you guys marched to his house, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about that. uh, Our ninth week. So basically throughout the nine weeks of our connections, we were making all these connections, right? Like it was a citywide organizing um, effort that centered around Warren Kanders and, and the Whitney Museum, but we were able to, like, address, like, uh, right, the land that the Whitney was on, the history of the Whitney being built there, displacing a lot of queer black and brown community that used to be there. Um, Like, and and also, like, the many different places that um, tear gas and rubber bullets are being used uh, that's manufactured and distributed by Safari Land, Uh, like Puerto Rico, Palestine, New York City. In New York City, because yeah, seven point three million dollars uh, worth of safari land, like weapons and equipment, was sold to the NYPD um, in two thousand sixteen. So like, like finding all these connections and really tying it into these nine weeks of our inaction. Then the ninth week is when we went to Warren Kander's house um, because, uh, you know, like we said, this is like a citywide. he lives there you know he lives in new york and the people like right by new school like in this very prominent area where it's like anyone and everyone can go and you know demand (laughs) like um or at least like make known um their um and I think just just recently there was another article that came out. Um, our forum just published another article by like Hannah Black and two other artists and writers um, addressing Warren Kanders and current by Young and the position artists can take within this moment. So what has his, um, he did make a statement, um, I believe only one, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And can you kind of paraphrase that for us? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, was it because Adam Weinberg made a statement? um, uh, Adam Weinberg basically said, like, um, told the staff to kind of stay in their place. That is not up to them to do this work and also that it's not up to the museum to uh, what fix all the animals of the world. And uh, Kanders was basically saying it's not his fault because he's not the one throwing the tear gas, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's just manufacturing, yeah. distributing. He's just a clog in the machine. <laughs> right. He's just a clog in the liberal machine. God bless his soul. So, like, I mean, and we know those are 
anyone reading it can tell that those are fucked up <laughs> responses yeah. Yeah. and trying to like kind of push off any responsibility um yeah so what's the plan that you guys are going back i believe right um because the museum obviously has not done anything so the plan is to go back in the fall in yeah the, fall? the plan is to go back in september decolonizes places working on opening a space uh here in brooklyn um a movement uh a movement space an action-oriented space where we can really start to see each other um in a physical space and really start to pump out these actions so um when that space goes up that's everything coincides boom we're back at the whitney so really we gave them the summer to kind of figure things out um hannah black uh and and the, and the two other writers in this amazing article that just came out that amy was talking about um called on uh artists to well we've always called on artists and organizers to use a diversity of tactics in the situation everyone knows what that looks like for them um and specifically within this article uh Hannah Black uh, and the two other writers um, asked artists to boycott the museum and to remove their work from the museum. So we're hoping in the coming days, in the coming weeks, to see that happening, right? To see people realizing their power, their collective power, and taking their work away. Because these people uh, at, the, at museums and institutions, they speak dollar signs, right? So right now, you know, me personally, I'm thinking, how can I leverage a financial blow to that institution such that they have no choice but to sit face to face with me mm-hmm. um, and to make change because at the end of the day, it's dollar signs. So we'll see what happens in September. I can't wait. <laughs> I'll be following you guys. I want to come to New York and join you. Um, we, we've ran out of time. Um, thank you so much, Amy and Mars, for speaking with me. Um, and I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us on State of the Art Podcast. You can learn more about Decolonize This Place at decolonizethisplace.org or follow them on Instagram at decolonizethisplace.